0: Anthony, what a wonderful podcast we had again this week with the amazing Dr. Julie Granger. Um, my head was hurting a little bit from just learning so much about teenagers in particular, a lot of the bony changes, which kind of I knew, but I feel like she put it in a better structured way in terms of timeframes and things.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all the little things, it's probably not even the main point that she was making, but just little off-handed remarks that, Shine the light differently on the topic, and he's like, "Oh, that's interesting. You know, it's um, it's really great. It's always fun. I feel I feel like it was a bit of a mirandering wander through the whole teenage process. It felt very teenage. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for
0: anyone who's working uh, with kids of that age range, you know, between I guess ten and twenty, really." Um, we talked about how there's they're not they're not very well serviced generally by healthcare practitioners we kind of have the pediatric physios and then we have the adult physios and the teens are kind of thrown in the middle Um, and we talked about why teens are different and how we need to support them through their injuries and getting back to sport and things like that and just really teach like treating them like a niche group that they're kind of not at the moment
1: yeah, absolutely. Being lumped in as different populations is really difficult. So, um, mm. you know, just just getting that, uh, just to help those of us health and fitness professionals, maybe see things a little bit differently. And one of the things that Julie brought up, which I thought was great, is that she feels like she's, you know, very lonely in rah-rah for teens. So if you <laughs> see lots of teens, please mm. let us know on our socials and include Julie on that. Because, you know, having that community of people that are servicing this population, particularly if that's a lot of the population that you see and you're set up specifically for that, that's really what we're interested in. Um, so please let us know in the socials and, um, you know, the podcast will be coming up right after the usual messages. Hi, welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. And I'm Marika Hart from Harrisphere.
0: Together we interview leading authorities, we answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information that we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember that the materials and the content on this podcast are intended as general information and they're for entertainment purposes only.
1: They're not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Now sit back, grab your favourite beverage or do your thing and enjoy the show. back to the podcast, and it's great to be back. Marika, welcome. Trusty co-host of teens. How are you going? Uh,
0: Yeah, I'm I'm going well. I just realised we are wearing our matching t-shirts today. Hashtag start the conversation, birth trauma. Uh, Isn't that awesome? We actually didn't coordinate that, so good on us. Um, So... I might just tell our audience, it's, it's ironic that we're talking about teens because we're, we're a bit late recording this podcast because my teen fell asleep on the bus on the way to school, woke up in a really dodgy area, and I just spent 20 minutes talking her down off that cliff and um, coaxing her to school by herself. Uh, so it's kind of ironic, the uh, conversation that we're having today with our magical guest.
1: Yes, indeed. And again, thank you for coming on the show, Julie. Magical. we've got our magical guest dr julie granger um you know
2: thanks for having me guys
1: now uh just to explain for our listeners julie is sitting in a spooky area it is around the time of halloween right now so it is a bit of a spooky area it's a little bit scary looking and um I I was joking, Marika, you, you, you were late as we just discussed. And I was saying, wouldn't it be funny if somebody just creeped up behind poked their head above Julie's shoulder and then just disappeared and faded off. Like, Oh my God, I'd freak.
2: Right. Right. So funny. For
0: those that are listening, she's in the dark <laughs> wearing, very dark, dark clothing that almost looks like army camo kind of from here. <laughs> They're sort of, Oh, a bit of computer lighting on her face. Yeah, it is quite eerie.
2: And the only lighting I have is the computer. That's right. It's so funny. Yeah. trying to make it work, guys. I'm coming here for you. I oh, know. For sure.
1: We appreciate it. Um, looking really forward, looking forward to hearing about teens and about what's going on. How is life in America right now?
2: Life in America is um, full of excitement. We've got, um, you know, it's almost Halloween, as you said, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of beautiful weather going on, at least where I am. Fabulous outside, just completely perfect fall weather. And, um, you know, other things are happening in America, there's an election going on. Um, There's people who are sick with COVID. There's just, you know, all sorts of fun going around for sure. I'm doing well, though.
1: <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, so, how to speak teen? Um, you know, you I, I know that you have this passion for teenagers and uh, providing healthcare for teenagers and helping other health and fitness professionals provide great quality care for teens. Um, aren't they just young adults? And I'm, you know, for those who don't know me. <laughs> I don't believe that, but just trying to start a conversation here. Um, Leading the witness. <laughs> Your Honor.
2: Yes, they are. Oh, we're done. Okay, that's all you need to know. They're just, no. <laughs>
1: they're just small people, smaller people. Some of them are bigger than me. Um, can, you, can you tell us about teens in general and why it might be important in terms of health healthcare?
2: Well, you know, teens definitely are not small adults, um, although some of them are bigger than adults, for sure, um, and and they're also not big children, which I think is, we can see them from two perspectives in healthcare, and that's actually how healthcare training is, is taught to not just physiotherapists, physical therapists, but also nurses and physicians and so many different health providers is you're taught adult medicine, and then you're taught pediatrics and in pediatrics we're taught about the zero to 12 age and then you know even the medication labels say after age 12 you can give them the adult dose right and after age 12 a lot of times uh, adolescents transition to more of a family practice physician as their primary care and so we kind of have this big crack in the health system where first and foremost in health training, there's a lack of knowledge on a very large age population. It's actually 50% of the pediatric population, which I consider under 21 um, developmentally, is an adolescent, is a teen, Okay, 50% of them worldwide. And then we have that disparity in education, and then we have the disparity in terms of the delivery of the healthcare model because of that. Once they get to age 12, the healthcare providers Treat them as if they are small adults. Um, Expect them to have the maturity level, the physical development. We're all done, right? They're done growing, right, at 12, aren't they? And then um, medicate them as such. And so you see that teens aren't treated the right way. Um, Not that there's a right and wrong, but they're not treated age appropriately on the level of their bodies, their minds, their spirits, their emotions. So things just fall apart. By the time they turn about twelve maybe about ten really they start to transition into adolescence
0: that's such an interesting point I never really thought about that but you're right in terms of the medications that you give the kids um, and my daughter who's she's 12 she's five foot six and she you know weighs 50 kilos or whatever so she's the size of an adult but she's 12 and you know emotionally and in all other ways physically she's not an adult
2: oh right
0: um, yeah but in terms of medications and how health some healthcare providers would see how I would imagine would be as a small adult um with in terms of that transition time because I guess for us growing up a few decades ago uh the teen sort of or puberty kind of seemed to be a little bit later in my mind you know maybe 13 14 Uh there does seem to be a shift a little bit earlier is that is that just our perception or is that actually science-based are kids going through puberty are are the hormonal changes happening earlier these days than compared to say 20 years ago
2: yeah we are seeing that happen there's not a lot of great evidence behind it sort of precocious puberty happening a little bit earlier and there's any number of 1000 theories as to why um and they're they're kind of theoretical for the most part maybe there's more hormones in the water maybe it's nutrition. Maybe it's that kids aren't exercising enough. Maybe they're exercising too much. There's not enough stress. There's too much stress. So there's lots of things that are going on. We do know that a population will evolve, you know, over time um, with generations. And so there's probably a lot of factors going on there. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting that puberty, the age range we call puberty really is about eight to 12, eight to 13 uh, in, in terms of entering adolescence, puberty being that hallmark period. Wow, that
0: seems so young. Mm
2: -hmm. Not everyone, if you picture it like a bell curve, right? You know, your averages are still 11, 12. um, But, and the bell curve's a little skewed towards that 11, 12, but you have definitely can start to see those, called Tanner stages, they're the stages of like secondary sex characteristics that start to show up, you can start to see Um, you know, the breasts start to bud in girls around age eight. Um, you can start to see pubic hair coming in girls around age eight, nine. It's not uncommon. Um, and so that's puberty technically (laughs) for sure.
1: And is there a difference between boys and girls, for example, like in terms of that average age of things like.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Is there a difference? So generally speaking, boys tend to come about a year to a year and a half or two behind girls. Um, Just that's developmentally what we see in almost everything uh, from a developmental standpoint once puberty starts to hit. You can see that a little earlier with some of the motor milestones as well, Um, but it really varies with those. They're a little more uh, standardized age-wise.
0: Well, should we start with talking about boys, teenage boys? Because I feel like, you know, we're, because I know we're going to talk about the girls a lot because it's a women's Mm -hmm. health podcast, but Mm -hmm. what are some of the, um, what are some of the things that you'd love to talk about in terms of teenage boys, Julie, that maybe we don't really consider as healthcare professionals that maybe we need to, you know, have a little bit more awareness of in terms of working with them in the clinic, things to look out for, better ways to manage them. I know that's a massive question, so feel free to like peel that back to a couple of a couple of important points
2: okay so the first one that comes to mind so first of all i don't teach as much about boys so i well but i have clinically worked with them a lot um but the first thing that comes to mind is that from the cultural cultural conditioning of boys you know they're taught don't complain don't speak up be tough um they do as a result, they do a lot more rough and tumble activities. And so you're going to see more traumatic type of, from a physio standpoint, more injuries, more just things that you would think are stupid. Like they were playing on the scooter and they jumped off a ledge, you know, because of there's more testosterone and there's more just adrenaline and things like that. They express their emotions a little more, even though they're taught not to complain, they, they um, hammer out their differences with peers more physically. So they're in more fights, there's just more, you know, dealing with things much more directly with their peers, but with themselves when it's their own health conditions, they don't complain, they're not supposed to talk about pain. Um, And so what we tend to see is a lot of bottling up of the truth or um, hiding of the truth or um, being conditioned or reinforced to suck it up. Um, And so they tend to wait, they're taught to, as a result to wait until something is a complete mushroom cloud, you know, 911 emergency to do something about their health. And we see that throughout adulthood, right? Like men never seek healthcare and don't speak up and they don't share their feelings and all those types of things. So that's the biggest thing I see in teenage boys is they are tough nuts to crack sometimes to kind of get in there and connect with them and let them know that it's okay to be vulnerable and say that something hurts and speak up and, and share about their health or their feelings or anything like that.
1: It's, um, it's definitely an interesting thing. Like even my boys have raised the the toxic masculinity thing, um, which is interesting. Um, and then, you know, what that looks like as well. And then seeing them do it at the same time as complaining about it, at the same time as like not complaining about it, but even endorsing it, it's it's like, you know, they say uh, adolescence is a confusing time. It's confusing for me as a parent too. <laughs> I think it's confusing for everybody.
0: We think so much in the media though too, Anthony. You know, if someone gets a big knock on the head on the footy field and goes back out there, oh, he's a champion. Look at him. He's so tough. yeah really lauded as being, you know, um, this superstar. And I, you know, we're trying to, especially with the concussions and things, it's like, okay, can, can, we, can we not praise that sort of behavior? Can we just say, oh, look, he's come off the field. He's taking care of himself. He's looking after his long-term health. What a superstar.
2: <laughs> he took some time off, you know,
1: <laughs> we One
2: could of the- celebrate those things.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, if we have time for stories, um, I watched the UFC fight with my son, you know? So we got up early, we got up at 4.30, we went to a fighter's house. He's a, you know, he's a fighting coach and a fighter. And um, we spent all morning talking about fighting and watching. But one of the interesting things, number one, I know my son wants to fight. And I said to him, look, this is why I'm concerned. But I know that if you're gonna do it, I'd rather you tell me so that I can be there to help you So for me, you know, the whole harm minimization for the last two decades that that real in, in Australia, we shifted to harm minimization over, no, you should just not do it. Right. So it was about 20, 25 years ago, they put an injection clinic in the city and there was a massive uproar, um, in Sydney that is, and it's been great because lots of lives have been saved. So harm minimization for me has been my whole health career. And then, um, the other thing was Justin Gaethy, who got beaten by Khabib, uh, the greatest pound-for-pound MMA fighter. Um, he, he was talking about, you know, I didn't take too much damage. It's really good. Like, he talked about thinking about his long-term health and how many hard headshots he's taking and how that really influences how he plans and how much recovery he had. Like, I thought it was a really great thing to change. Um, In terms of learning how to speak about that with boys, I had no idea what to do. Like, I'm just presenting my side of things. Do you have any tips on, on those sorts of interactions with boys? How to counter that toxic masculinity thing? How to change the conversation?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's never too late to start having those conversations and riding the ship it's always best done as early as possible in a boy's life. And just, I think that it's one of those call out the elephant in the room types of things and acknowledge your own, your own upbringing, your own vulnerabilities. This is you being you, the adult, the parent talking to a kid or the clinician, if you're a clinician acknowledge the awkward, awkward thing that's sitting out in front of everyone and ask them what they know about it and what they actually think about it. I think asking questions rather than telling is a really good place to start um, to get their take on it. Because what's really interesting is I've had a lot of teens who, they may say one thing and act a certain way, but when you actually kind of get them into a conversation about it, they don't believe that. So this is one thing boys do, right? They perform to try and fit in, girls do it too. you know, all genders, uh, all all of all teens do that, and so when you can kind of show them this dichotomy, this values conflict of they value fitting in and they value honoring their health and honoring their bodies, and they actually really fear, you know, getting hurt and feeling like they were going to miss sports or whatever it is that the injury or the problem that's being, you know, um, romanticized in the in the media or whatever. Um, then you can start to, to break it down and, you know, start asking really challenging questions, open ended, what and how questions. Okay. But what would it mean if you continued to play football after you got a concussion when you weren't supposed to, right? What does that actually say about you? You know, and what does that mean about your values? What you're actually practicing value wise. And a lot of times they can start to go, Oh, I'm just going with the crowd. Oh, I'm trying to fit in. Oh, I'm trying to look like that guy who's this amazing athlete on TV. And they can start to realize, and this can be a real awakening for them to say, wow, these people I admire or I listen to are saying quote, wrong things. This is how the teen brain works. They're very right and wrong. And that's okay for where they are. and it can be difficult because they, they ad- admire and idolize certain people, their teachers, their coaches, the athletes themselves. And then they kind of have to, you have to walk them through that whole finding their own identity piece and helping them um, establish that it's okay to break those societal norms themselves and maybe be kind of set apart from the crowd and then support them and encourage them to feel isolated. It's okay if they feel lonely and isolated and um, help them see that maybe one to two high quality mentors or friends are better than this whole drove of people who are continuing to drive that conversation in the wrong direction <laughs> for them.
0: Yeah, and I think I what I hear you saying there, Julie, <laughs> um, sorry, just taking the mic out of Anthony again, but we it's that idea of just really being curious, asking lots of open-ended questions. I actually do do this with my kids and it frustrates them at times, but it really is interesting because what we think they're thinking is completely different to where, where they're actually coming from. And it's so easy to get frustrated and like, why are you doing that? You know that that's stupid. Whereas without the judgment, just actually sitting down and saying, hey, I've noticed that this is going on me about it like you know what's happening what are you what are you thinking about that uh, what would happen if you continue down that pathway um what do you think is the next thing and i think not even about sport as well but you know health choices so i have a celiac son sorry son with celiac disease and so he has a gluten-free diet and he has had from a young age now at some point in his late teens maybe later i'm sure he's going to want to go Ah, oh, screw it i just want to have a pizza all right all my friends are having a beer, you know, I I just want to be able to do that. It's not fair, you know, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, he'll have to go through that thought process, I guess at some point and weigh up, you know, what is my what is my risk reward here? Um, but I, I think as, as teenagers, they're always going to want to at some point challenge, challenge the yeah, status yeah. quo, challenge the parents' beliefs. And I think by having those conversations in a way, you're helping them make the decisions for themselves, rather than it being us telling them, this is good for you, you need to do this. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but that's kind of where my brain is at 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 the moment.
2: Well, you know, you just hit the nail on the head in like how to speak teen, which is number one, ask questions. Number two, don't tell, unless it's truly, and this is difficult, especially as a parent, unless it's truly an emergency, right? Or it's truly, they're about to harm themselves, you need to tell them, right? And I would say this to clinicians as well. At some point you do have to step in and be the parent and you have to be like, listen, you're about to step in front of a train, let's move, right? Like we're gonna go this way. Instead, you just have to steer them. But most of the time, once they're about age, I mean, I say as young as five, but like age appropriate, but once they can really start to understand the world a little bit, asking questions, what would happen if you continued down that that road? What you mentioned about them having to weigh the consequences, teens don't have practice at doing that because up until about age 12, parents, just age-wise, developmentally, parents are going to take responsibility for their kids' actions. That's just what happens. And so here are your consequences. You need to pack your lunch. I'm gonna pack your lunch. If I don't pack your lunch for you, you're not gonna eat, right? And so when they become teens, they they enter adolescence which is really that puberty range it's very important it's important when they're younger too but it's very important to let them start to make choices answer their own questions by you asking them the questions and then allow them to experience consequences of those choices because they will never learn how to foresee the future and decide consequentially, ooh, if I do this, then this could happen, or if I do this, then this can happen. We don't actually let them experience consequences from the get-go, right? And as a five-year-old, that might look like you don't get the candy you want and you're gonna throw a tantrum in the middle of the grocery store floor and I am not gonna react to that. I am just gonna pick you up and we're gonna go and you still don't get the candy, right? And you know there's a consequence that maybe you also don't get to use the ipad for an hour right and so they get to learn right this is just a consequence it's not a punishment this is what happens when i act in a way that's not an integrity <laughs> right with who i am who i really am striving to be teens also will break rules like you said with your son this is normal we want them to in a safe way in a safe and secure way again we don't want them jumping in front of the train ideally but um ultimately they won't learn consequences and they won't learn how to be independent adults if we don't give them the opportunity to break rules Um, and let them just see the the reason the rules are in place in the first place Um, because we could tell them till we're blue in the face this rule is here to protect you and keep you safe and again there are some things where you we do kind of need to use what i might call scare tactics because we don't want them to experience grave consequences. But things like, and I, I'm just going to speak kind of liberally here, like letting, and I know in Australia, 18 year olds can drink alcohol, but letting a 16 year old like suffer the consequences for not telling you that they were drinking. They drink too much. They feel terrible the next day. Right. And they don't, they need to understand, right. That this is a consequence of this action for all the parents out there. I'm not saying that you need to allow people to drink underage, right? But they're gonna do it. They're gonna find a way to break the rule. They're smart, right? And if they do it, embrace that they there is a consequence here and what can be learned from it. That is where you can come back in and start asking questions. What did you learn from this, right? What would happen if you do that again? What would happen if you don't do it again? What's the consequence if you don't go out and drink with your friends, right? Oh, social consequences, right? You're gonna be outcast from the group. Okay great great that you acknowledge that now what do we do right so letting them kind of be the driver of the conversation is important they don't like to talk to adults anyway so we may as well not come at them with a lot of like telling and teaching
0: i'm just thinking i'm smiling because we're talking about learning learning lessons so that um that that thing that happened just before we got on the podcast with my daughter (laughs) as she got to school and was still on the phone she's calmed down she's doing okay she said She said something funny to me. She said, well, mom, this experience was like a vaccine. And I said, what do you mean? And Mm -hmm. she said, well, I just had the little experience, which exposed me. So then I've learned something from it. And my body has, I've become more immune or more strong for the next time I have an experience like that. And I was like, oh
2: my God, that was
0: a a really good analogy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that really is. I'm going to use that for sure. (laughs) Tell your daughter that I'm going to borrow that. (laughs)
0: I will. I will. I thought that was quite funny. (laughs) Hey, should we move on? Should we move on to the girls? Because, um, you know, we, we work a lot more with, I guess, uh, females in general, or those that identify as female. Um, Do you have, so let's, let's kick the ball off then. And we'll talk about, let's talk about puberty and some of the changes that happen um, for the girls. And, you know, again, you know, maybe some of the things that we need to consider when we're working with teenagers, because I know, like working in sports clinics, which Anthony has done as well, you know, a lot of the teenagers are really just thrown in with physios who come from less of a paediatric background. And so they're traditional musculoskeletal or sports physiotherapists. We probably get little bits of training in particular things like, you know, Severs disease or maybe some of the lumbar spine stress fracture. You know, there's like bits and pieces of things, but I, I personally don't feel like we get a lot of training with adolescents. So I'm really interested to get some good tips from you.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, all the things I just said about consequences hundred percent applies to girls or those who identify as female or those who are genetically XX. <laughs> I'm going to use all the terms here. Um, but from a, just, um, mu- musculoskeletal perspective, Everything developmentally that happens in the immature skeleton also happens earlier in girls one to two years as well. And growth plates, you mentioned, you say severs, I say severs, um, disease. Um, so that's usually one of the first, um, it's called an apophysis, starts with an A, apophysis. That's the, the bony attachment of a musculotendinous unit or a ligament on the, on the bone. Um, and that's in the heel, the calcaneus um that's usually one of the first the youngest sign that a child is going through a growth spurt um because that that growth plate is open and you can't really get a growth plate injury unless the growth plate is open and growing and so that's that they're at risk when they're growing which really growth the severs can be as young as seven or eight um so really the growth plate opens before they actually grow um and then so you can start to get get conditions quite earlier. And usually it's an overuse injury, that one for example. You can get Osgood splatters, which is similar, it's on the tibial tuberosity in the knee, similar ones in the pelvis. Um, and, and so the, the older they get, the higher up the problems go in the limbs, All right, And so you see the same thing very similarly in the, the upper extremity as well. So you see elbow issues and then shoulder issues uh, too. But what's really interesting is people always um, ask, I I love this analogy is to think of children like puppies. Um, So you think of puppies with the big, big paws, right? So the first thing that grows are the feet. And then you see the the lower leg grow and then the, the thigh, the femur grow. And so at first they have these really big feet and it doesn't match their body. So they look awkward. And this is very awkward looking in girls. I think for girls, they look so much more awkward than boys and then their limbs grow, their arms and their legs. They have these really long legs and and still huge feet and a very short little torso. (laughs) And I always think it looks like an awkward giraffe. So we've got puppies and we've got awkward giraffe going on, right, Um, because giraffes have this like small torso compared to how long their limbs are. Uh, And then lastly, what happens is the pelvis will then start to widen That's where you start to see the pelvic apophyses start to open um, and you see the musculotendinous overuse issues there on the ASIS, the AIIS, the ischial tuberosity. Those are usually around 13, 14, uh, that those start in girls. And then um, after that, the spine will start to, the, the vertebra, the vertebral body will start to broaden and get taller and that is what causes the spine to grow. That's the last thing, and the spine actually finishes its growth between 25 and 30. Fun fact, so some people who are watching this who are in your 20s, you're still growing, you're still a teen, in my mind. Um, And what's interesting is what I didn't mention are the epiphysis, the the growth plate that is actually responsible for the long growth. And so those are also at risk when the growth of those bones are occurring in different parts of the developmental pathway. Um, what uh, and those those are where we hear like growth plate fracture, um, and the the apophysis, the musculotendinous attachment, is usually more of a traction type injury, um, or uh, it can get a little sheer, but not as much. the 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 growth centers are more shear injuries or compression injuries, and then you can hear in the apophysis, the musculotendinous attachments of. Um, avulsions which do they do happen um and uh those are going to be more common the injury in a teen or an adolescent compared to an adult where somebody might tear their hamstring tendon um versus in a teen they're going to see a traction injury of the growth plate which sometimes is a better injury to have because it's a bony um injury versus a, a tendonous injury better being a relative term. That's your muscular skeletal stuff for sure, basics.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, it's <laughs> and it's um, you know these these little differences can make such a difference because quite often they're you know in the ones that I've seen you know it's achy it's kind of non-specific it's sometimes there sometimes not. And you're like, oh, is this the start of Osgood Slatter's? Because you can't see anything yet, but it's kind of Mm -hmm. getting there. Um, and then trying to convince somebody about not him. sorry, let me stop. Trying to explain how load management works, um, (laughs) reframe that, uh, you know, just how load management works and why things might be happening so that they can choose, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's always a negotiation, right? It's always a a discussion to be had. Um, how might we clinicians have, you know, we've got ideas about these things. How might that not serve the teen? and how, you know, how can we reframe how we think about these things so that we can serve them better so that we can, we can help, provide the information and the resources that they need so that they can choose which way they want to help, um, you know, manage their own health conditions and right. Teens are the perfect population to move forward with being the CEO of their healthcare. So, you know, um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: what can we do there?
2: Well, just drawing back into the musculoskeletal stuff, um, keeping, I mean, not that that's basic, but it it is basic bones and muscles, you know, um, and growth plates. From a clinician experience bias um, training, again, that, that hole in our training. I mean, when I was in physical therapy school, we learned about growth plate conditions, but we basically learned, hey, go look that up when you might need to know it. The growth plate charts, the developmental charts, the ages, those are actually very important to know Like if you're gonna work with teens, you need to commit those to your memory and know really what those, I hate to use the word normal, I don't love the word normal, but what the normal age ranges are, the expected age ranges for the growth plates to be open, for the injuries to occur, and what types of injuries occur, and also knowing the mechanisms of injury for each type of growth plate. For example, an ankle sprain. Somebody rolls their ankle well if they're six then it's probably a sprain of the ligament if they're 12 could be a growth plate fracture if they're 16 it's probably a sprain of the ligament and the treatment and the recommendations that are made depend on where that growth plate is um, and how severe it could be who you send them to if you're a physio for example and they need radiographs matters so if they're in the age where the growth plate is open, we need to know if that growth plate has been injured and that you can only know if that growth plate has been injured if you compare it to the other side. Because sometimes it's so subtle that it's really difficult to tell. And sometimes it's so subtle that it's very severe. The most severe type of injury is a compression injury. So if someone lands really hard on it, when they sprain it or uh, roll it, I should say not sprain, Um, And that one actually requires surgery. Some of the more severe types require surgical correction to to keep the growth plate from arresting its growth and then getting a limb deformity. Um, So that's really important to know that those consequences can occur at certain ages with what we might consider a fairly benign injury. Oh, they rolled their ankle, just walk it off, put a brace on it for a few days. Bracing is okay, depending on the, the grading of a growth plate fracture but sometimes they need to be completely immobilized in a cast or a boot. Um, so typically the person you send them to needs to know, first of all, two uh, x-rays of both sides, whenever you're, you're picturing a growth plate happening. And that applies to the apophysis too, the tenderness attachment if there's a traction injury, because you have to compare the space in the growth plate that's occurred. Um, and so sometimes sending them to an adult physician or an adult radiologist or whoever who doesn't see a lot of kids, isn't gonna think to do both And also, even if they do, they're they're not going to quite know what they're looking at. So you want to have someone who's vetted and is trained in pediatrics and growth plates and musculoskeletal conditions in pediatrics um, and that type of thing. And then they're going to make the right decision from an immobilization versus letting them have activity. And that gets me into the next piece, which is how we language around growth plates. or any type of really teen specific condition. It could be hormones, it could be anything, but we'll talk growth plates, keeping it basic again. So I just mentioned the word fracture and I mentioned cast and I mentioned things that traditionally to humans can feel very scary, especially a teen who might be an athlete or might feel really embarrassed about having a cast at school. Um, And so, especially in Australia, for example, you guys are the frontline providers for, musculoskeletal injuries in, in the United States as well, but not as much as physios. And so when it's like, oh, this could be a growth plate fracture. We don't want to come at them, right? With just like, we want to be honest, but we, we don't want to come at them with all of the laundry list of the consequences I just told you, right? And use scare tactics to get them to stop walking or to put crutches on or anything like that. Yes, we want to keep them safe. As we talked about, we want consequences to be learned. But at the same time, um, there's a really kind way to reduce our own fear about this. Oh, this is this big thing, it's a teen. Oh man, I gotta take this really seriously because Julie said growth plate, right? But we wanna make sure that it's like, okay, here's the deal, I'm gonna use the word growth plate. and I'm gonna use the word fracture. Tell me what that means to you first, right? And kind of get, I love asking parents, tell me what you know about this first and kind of gauge where they are before I come at them with all the possibilities of what could be happening. And usually I'm talking them off the ledge already when I'm like, okay, you know, it's a growth point, like, oh gosh, is their leg gonna grow shorter than the other one? You know, is it not gonna, all this kind of stuff. And I say, no, do not look up this on the internet, by the way, and only listen to me. And this is what you need to do. She's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. Um, But you need to see this type of specialist and here's why right and you know make sure that i kind of i follow all the way through i call the physician myself and really kind of walk through this what can be a very vulnerable time for dealing with teen conditions cuz not only do we as healthcare providers not really understand them you better believe parents don't so yeah
0: yeah that's interesting and sorry just my brain just went to acl's there cuz i think ACLs. that's yeah 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 that's kind of um and I feel like the, the management for that I mean that's obviously going to hugely depend on the age of the child and the sport that they play and mm-hmm. where they are in the world but um, maybe you could just give us a little bit of a you might know a little bit more about the up-to-date sort of feelings around surgical versus conservative management for children in that you know 10 to 13 in particular age group it's tricky isn't it
2: super tricky and controversial it depends on who you ask really and ultimately it's one of those like PT it depends things right you know it really is a hundred percent contextual so I've seen um, I'm gonna call them tweens it's really the tween age nine to 12 13. it's, it's usually more concerning in boys actually of do you do surgery or not because again they tend to be a little more rough and tumble they tend to have trouble following rules I didn't mention that about boys earlier um, and like staying still, right? And so, sometimes, you you they won't opt in to do what's called a physeal sparing procedure, where they actually do a different type of ACL reconstruction that allow that doesn't drill through the growth plate in the tibia or the femur. Uh, in order to put the anchors in, they they often opt out of that because it is a riskier procedure. There's a higher fail rate in it. Um, for many reasons, because it's just not as strong of an anchor in the um, in the bones, and the skeleton's still growing, so it's kind of loosey goosey in there. Um, and there's a higher fail rate because we probably see more ACL tears in younger boys. In which case, right, you're, you've got this sort of dynamic of are they going to sit still? Are they going to use the crutches correctly? Are they going to wear the brace really? right? And you can think about your own kids where you're like, no way, that's just not going to happen, right? Like that's, there's no way I can hold them down um, without completely torturing the child. So it's not humane at some point. So a lot of times they just won't do surgery, right? And they'll wait until they'll brace them, cross our fingers. We're going to pray a little bit and just hope that the the joint cartilage doesn't wear down too much. Maybe do some activity restriction a little bit. Maybe we're not playing soccer. Maybe it's now um, something with less cutting and side to side or impact type stuff Um, while they're still young enough to redirect into another sport, which is hopefully okay, right? And then they might do the surgery once the the growth plate is closed um, at 14, 15, 16. The good news is with girls, their growth plates open earlier and also close earlier. So you see them younger with ACL tears that are in this type of predicament, but their growth plates close, you know, sometimes as earlier as 13, 14, and so they can do a full Kind of normal hamstring graft ACL reconstruction, um, and do well. Um, girls tend to be more compliant with immobilization bracing. Uh, they just tend to be a little bit more rule following. Again, cultural thing here. Um, so they they they're better. They're for better or worse. They um, they don't participate in as many impact sport or uh, 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 contact sports um, that where they're going to run into someone else. Um, they do some right, but not as many as boys. So, um, and for better or worse, there aren't as many sports available for girls, uh, after about age 13. So sometimes we don't run into as many issues with that.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, while, yeah, it is a tricky situation. And I was just thinking, um, you know, when, when, when dealing with that type of situation, I know that it's, a difficult conversation that I have with, say, my kids or just kids in general, is this whole time factor thing, right? Like, time seems to be warped for them. It's really mm-hmm. weird. Um, you know, six months is forever. A week is forever. Six six weeks is forever. Um, six minutes can be forever. So, um, how do you how do you talk about that? How do we, you know? hey you know let's wait for your bones to grow stronger if you do that or or even if we go the conservative route which seems to be hey let's get your hamstrings super strong let's you know strengthen the strengthen you up a lot around this area um how do we have that conversation and and keep the diligence and um you know take advantage of some of the some of the things that are good about consistent conservative management or even just waiting a little bit so that you get a better result have a decision do you have any tips on the time warping discussion
2: yes and no you know it's it's so subjective um all the answers i wish i did right um i would be like a millionaire if i did but um you know time with kids is warped right six months to a 10 year old is 1/120th of their life that's 5% of their life that's a lot right whereas 5% of my life now is just like a couple of years right and so if you think about it right like that is a very long period of time that's half more than half of a school year a school year to a kid is like so long and so when we think about relatively speaking you know what we don't want to do okay here's a don't and i don't give a lot of don'ts but here's one is don't come right at them and say you got to sit on your butt for six months they're done they're checked out they're not they don't trust you anymore right and so you don't want to lie to them you want to be honest but at the same time it's like you have to give them small digestible time bits so on that same token you also don't want to give promises uh yes you'll be back to soccer in six months or yes you'll be back by next season so it's a lot of we'll see um it's a lot of we will do you you're gonna you need to work hard you know this is what needs to happen and we have certain things we're gonna check off along the way and so it's those checkoffs that you can promise that we're gonna get to that right you know provided a meteor doesn't come hit the earth and we're all obliterated right like so like we're gonna get to this checkoff, right And then when we reach this measurement, then we'll figure out what the next step is, right? What's so beautiful about this is no guarantees, no promises, but also not scaring them with like, this is the end result, right? Is it teaches kids to live in the uncertain, which they need to learn. Um, And they really need to learn that because we as adults are real bad at that. Um, And so teaching them that it's okay to not know all the answers. It's okay to not know where to go. It's okay to feel afraid about that. It's okay to feel, Um, upset, letting emotions be there. This is good, like let them feel those feels and be there and support. This is where our clinician biases can get in trouble where we feel uncomfortable with people's emotions, we feel uncomfortable with our own, especially kids, right? It brings up our own little kid emotions and we're like, ah, right, this is awkward. And so a little bit of um, um, personal work is important there too, do your own work. But that's a really important thing with kids as a parent, but also a clinician is just give little digestible, tangible goal steps along the way. Okay. We have three weeks and over the course of three weeks, this is what our goal is. Here are the steps we're going to take to get there and make it very, very tangible because that brain is so black and white, right? They need to know what you can also do. If you do think this is going to be a three to six while they're doing this, Straight leg raise, throw, throw
1: the ball. No. Sorry, Julie. We lost you for just a second. So um, we and- do video. Oh,
2: oh, you're, oh,
1: and you're back. Um, so you were transitioning, you were transitioning. Oh, can't hear you, Marika. Oh, you were transitioning from the, our own biases about dealing with teens.
0: And, the, and their brains being very black and white. Yeah. And keeping things
2: very tangible. Very tangible and literal. Right. So ultimately, oh, I gotta remember what I was saying now. Um, ultimately, you want to give them the benchmarks and the steps, right? And even though you're not going to tell them whether they can play soccer or not, right? Or uh, how long it's going to be, bring that soccer ball in on day one. Even if, Doing, you know, straight leg raises, <laughs> right, like and they let it up there and they bring it down nice and slow. Okay, great. We're going to throw the ball six times, right? Um, just to, to keep their brains engaged in that dream that they want to get back to soccer. What we don't want to do is destroy their hope because kids are resilient and they can prove you wrong. Even if all the data says that they probably won't get to play soccer again. They're going to figure out a way to do it. I've seen kids do it with amputations, with you know, tumors in their legs, and if they can do it, then the child who needs the for sure.
0: That's awesome. We did lose you a little bit there, but I think we got the gist that. I early that context
2: <laughs> yeah. Gauge that
0: sporting brain, even if it's like the most simple of exercise. Let's bring in the soccer ball if that's what they want to do. Let's bring in the music if it, they're a dancer or you know tap into whatever it is that that they love that they can see that you're on the same page that you're heading towards the same ultimate goal
2: yes for sure mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and like, you know, oh go ahead no yeah, you go ahead
0: no because i was going to change the topic so you continue
2: <laughs> well i was just going to say like other things right like bringing in other kid life things like Letting them pick the the song on that you're playing in the clinic. Letting them, uh, if you have TV on, right? Like pick the show that's on or the movie that's on. Something that um, helps also distract them. Distraction's a great tool with teens. <laughs> um, it really is, and it takes their mind off of the completely illogical things that are going on on in there.
0: My ten year old is in such a filthy mood this morning, and he just got off on the got up on the wrong side of the bed. He was laying on the floor. He was not, just not moving. And I was kind of, come buddy, come buddy. He just wouldn't. I said, let me put on some music for you. What do you want to hear? And he sort of hadn't done anything but grunt all morning and managed to come up with a song. I said, cool, I'll, I'll put it on. If you sit up and have some breaking." you'll put it on. And like a minute later, he's, you know, dancing around the table. <laughs> I just couldn't believe how much it switched around. It's music that I just do not like whatsoever. And he mm. knows that. So it was kind of a bit of a sacrifice too. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, we digress. Um, Julie, we, I know we, we probably will have to wind up pretty, pretty soon, but I just had one last question that I wanted to ask about because we've talked a lot about the athletes, um, but obviously we, there's a large portion of the population of teens who are less active, less physically active, um, and it can be hard to get the motivation for some of them. And I, my, my sister-in-law, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast, my sister-in-law is a lecturer in, in the UK and works a lot with teenage girls and in sport, I should totally hook you up um, because you'd have a lot to talk about. But she was doing some research in some of the factors that influenced female participation through the teens. And they found that it was simple things like in school, if there were separate change rooms and and showers, like the ability to have some some privacy. And, you know, there were just like a few factors that they looked at. And I just wanted to know if you had some tips for health professionals and parents, for those of us who have children who perhaps think all sport is evil and never, ever want to do it, we're trying to encourage them to be physically active and to um, and to I guess want to do something. Um, I'd love to hear your your take on that.
2: Well, you know, I think that the first thing I would do is find out if for them physical activity is a potential social outlet for them. Um, so it may be that they don't realize you know that it's a great way to hang out with friends to build lifelong friends who can then that can be the motivation. that's sometimes the problem when sport is taken away whether it's due an injury due to quitting, due to dropping out, um, disinterest that type of thing they lose that social outlet So some kids social alone can be a great motivation. Um, the next I would say is recontextualize what we define physical activity as for teens and allow them to have a really broad sample of things that might non-traditionally be considered sport. So rock climbing, um, kayaking, a lot of kids who don't like sport actually are quite introverted. And so they don't want the social, they don't wanna be around other kids. They're very self-conscious in their bodies. They don't want people looking at them. They don't want people watching them move, right? And so maybe they need to do something that's a little bit more solo and um, self-driven. Maybe they're the type who needs to go hike in the mountains, you know, or do something that's just, ride ride the Razor scooter, you know, and learn how to go do crazy BMX biking at at the cycling park, you know, something that's just a little bit more, again, uh, cranial too, you know, it takes some thinking and engineering and things like that. So we don't create a great space in our world for kids who are in the non-traditional movement type of uh, setting, Um, and then what we haven't mentioned is kids who have some type of inclusivity issue with movement, um, whether that's race, gender, socioeconomic status, um, physical disability. Gender being females actually have way less inclusivity in, in physical movement, way less opportunity and access to things. And so there's a lot of kids who fall through the cracks there, um, teens who fall through the cracks in physical activity because they they honestly don't know that certain things exist um, or it, they don't have access to it or there's not enough money um, or education or there's a language barrier or there's something happening, right? And so from a physio standpoint, from a clinician standpoint, there's a teen who comes into your clinic who is like, ew, gross exercise, right? Like, or just, is modest and and self-conscious, you know, that's, that's a piece of maybe giving them more privacy when you first start getting them moving and asking them like, sort of like life coaching kind of questions. Like, what do you do for fun? Oh, you like coding. Great. Well, we're going to do this balance exercise with the iPad and you're going to code a website while you're balancing on one foot, you know, like bring in what's really interesting to them rather than alienate them because they're just not movers, you know, um, and, 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 and that's tricky in communities that don't have access to swimming pools or don't have access to volleyball courts or you know the beach where they could go play in the sand or something like that. So it's a, it's a really systemic issue that we need to work on uh, to answer your question broadly. But I think making it fun, really finding out what makes them tick, finding out if they really just don't like to be around people, which is completely okay Um, And then some teens back to the social issue. This is where I see an issue in clinics, especially if the clinic tends to trend towards treating more adults or younger children. So you're more pediatric clinic, you're more adult medicine, musculoskeletal clinic, the teens see the adults and they don't want to be around them. And they see the children and they don't want to be around them. And so creating, making sure there's space in your clinician schedule where there's teens coming around each other. So they'll identify with each other and feel a little bit more comfortable, a little more at home. I worked in a clinic that was only teens, uh, 21 at like six to 21, mostly 12 and up uh, for years. And it was that, it was perfect for that. Um, And they would send us teens who uh, were maybe like higher level of function, but had a neurological injury or a neurological problem simply so that they could be around teens because they didn't fit in, in the pediatric neurological rehabilitation clinic. Um, and then I worked in a private practice where there were teens. I, I saw mostly teens, but other clinicians treated adults and the teen, it was insane. Just teens have radar for it. They would, they would look around and be like, Uh, You know, you could just feel how uncomfortable they were. Um, They already feel awkward around adults. And now you're making them like do stomach exercises, you know, and talk about their, their hips or their pelvic floor, whatever it is, you know, and it's just, it can be really strange. So I had to really work hard to schedule them around each other, make sure I had an enormous amount of games and things that were interesting for them and decorate my little office room that was very teen friendly. Yeah.
0: So many great points in that. I love that you mentioned sort of privilege and access and things like that, because I think sometimes we don't ask those questions. We can make assumptions that people have access to equipment, to coaches, to anything. And some people will will not have those facilities nearby, will not have those equipment. So I'm glad that you you mentioned that because then we need to find out that information and find ways to be creative because we can do so much with body weight, can't we?
2: Yeah. Well, and you know the point of race, gender, so we have economic status, disability. What I'm speaking to is the broader topic of physical literacy. So physical literacy is the interest, access, and motivation to learn a physical movement skill. And it starts being acquired as soon as a child is moving. Um, so if a child has grown up in a community that doesn't have, like I mentioned, sand, then they're never gonna probably learn beach volleyball. Right. If they grew up in a community that doesn't have green space, doesn't have parks, right, Um, which is very common, then they're not going to learn field sports where there needs to be grass, right? If they've grown up in a community that's full of snow, right, then they're going to be great at snow sports, but they're going to have no interest in your traditional sports, right? And so, to your original question of someone who's not motivated to move, A lot of times these are actually completely normal kids from from a standpoint of privilege or like all of those other factors. And they just haven't ever accessed or seen these types of activities. Another issue we didn't mention and it's way too much to talk to probably in this podcast is specialization, right? If I specialize at age seven in a sport, I don't have access and therefore no motivation and interest in certain activities. I lose my sport because I tore my ACL at nine right then i no longer have interest in moving i have no motivation i have no access because i've kind of aged out of certain sports in my community i'm the kid who is now in drugs and you know getting in trouble so yeah
1: sounds like a great reason to get you back on (laughs) Um, specialization is an interesting one for us too Um, Mm -hmm. and thankfully I think in Australia, we're not as specialized, but you can certainly see some of the drive towards it.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: And, you know, reading reading the stuff from America is interesting as well. Um, Just before we get up to the final bit, I thought I'd just recap what we've done so far and uh, ask you about, uh, you know, you've got a course coming up, so we'll get to that. So we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast. you know, it sounds like, uh, teens, adolescents are like already, they struggle to fit in, in society. Like you even just said it again, you know, they look around, they see adults, they don't want to be with them, but they don't want to be with the kids. Um, and yet we've got this demarcation of 12 years old, you take medicine this way. And if you're above 12, you can take the adult dose and it, you know, it just permeates throughout the healthcare system like that. Um, So they're already a different population, some of our beliefs, some of our biases, and that transition from taking responsibility as a parent, you know, for uh, primary school kids, we call them here, but you know, Mm -hmm. the the 12 and unders and transitioning, like I can tell you as a parent, for me, that transition is very hard for me but it was helpful because when I started sharing why we were worried or why we like them to do things this way and like it it, it makes mm-hmm. that conversation just that little bit easier. But um, you know, the time warping factor and different topics are at different levels. So that's super interesting as well. So, you know, that, that perspective that you brought on how to speak teen, you know, don't come at them with everything uh don't tell them what to do ask more questions and talk to them about it even the thing about um you know they'll say one thing because they're performing and yet they believe something else or they'll do something different if given the chance and we've just talked about opportunity and privilege um and it's actually an interesting thing because i've just been listening to some books which have mentioned it as well that it's in the adult literature as well you know people will say that they believe in these things these qualities and yet when they get the opportunity to do something they don't necessarily do that
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: which is very interesting as well so like you've alluded to quite a few times as adults because we haven't thought about these things when we were teenagers we carry forward and probably are perpetuating a lot of these things in the kids. I look,
2: right.
1: you know, certainly look at myself and, um, you know, I apologize to my kids publicly here. Um, we're trying, we're trying our best. We all are right. We, we genuinely are trying. So all of that and you know, how teens can fall through the cracks, how, um, you know there are special considerations for we we talked briefly on growth plate related injuries and times of where the diagnosis may differ based on the mechanism of injury whether the surgical considerations um you know even like you know there's a whole bunch of things i could talk about growth plates to you about all of that and um you know as clinicians applying the same sort of holistic approach towards the provision of care for teens, the setting up of the clinic space, the booking in of times, the, the potential for even making sure that, like if you do group classes, trying to have them as uh, you know age appropriate for the group that you might be seeing, um, sounds like really practical advice that you've given um how am I going so far did I cover the all? did I cover I
2: think so. yeah uh-huh. mm-hmm.
1: cool I just wanted to make sure I heard you correctly uh,
2: yeah.
1: uh, so uh lastly you've got a course uh about teenagers that's coming out um who's it for can you tell us a little bit about it we will have a link in the show notes and um you know We'll make sure all of that information is available, but can you let us know a little bit about that, please?
2: Yeah, uh, this course has been a labor of my career. (laughs) It's kind of the life's work, I think, um, for teens. I've written a book, as you know, and that was really more for athletes. This one is much more holistic for all teens, very inclusive of not just athletes. For health providers, um, physical therapists and health providers with a strong slant towards physical therapist material, as I am one. Um, And that's my perspective. But I've kept the main course content, which I teach all of it um, on almost all realms of teen health, physical health, growth plates, musculoskeletal, pelvic health, but also like reproductive and hormone health. Um, We've got cognitive cognitive development, how they think and learn and get educated. We've got emotional, social psychological um, development, things about teens. We've touched on some of them, right? And then uh, I've got a whole module on how to speak teen and speak parent uh, together or, you know, guardian, if it's not an actual parent. And then the last one is the marketing. And I, I touched on that so briefly, like make sure you have your clinic designed this way and you have appointments available that work for them, right? But so all that's covered. And then I have 20 plus, experts coming to teach because I can't be the only one, right? And there's so many people who have a really fresh, interesting perspective on specialty areas of teen health. And the way that will work for clinicians who take the course is they can kind of choose their own adventure within those specialty modules. So if I work in musculoskeletal, I don't necessarily go need to go learn about something that's not in my interest area, although I could in order to broaden my horizons on teens. So we have everything from musculoskeletal to early specialization to several experts on physical literacy that I mentioned um, who are great researchers on that. Um, We've got pelvic health endometriosis, pelvic health PT. So actual, do you do internal or not with teens? Um, That question gets totally busted wide open. Um, And it's really interesting answers that we have. We have neurological injuries, we have um, teens with disabilities, teens with cancer, the whole gamut. And then multidisciplinary people I've interviewed. Um, And then we're also including parents, uh, getting the parent perspective. And then my favorite part, including teens and getting their perspective on what is happening in their lives and what it's like to go through the healthcare system, and I asked them very honestly to give us feedback on how we're doing for them, uh, and that helps you with your marketing, right? But it also is great so you can really show up giving them what they need. So this course starts uh, in a couple weeks, actually, um, and it'll be an ongoing thing. So you can enroll anytime, um, and it is available for continuing education credit, continuing education credits, in the, at least in the United States. Um, because i wanted to give people you know extra credit for doing the work but i i hope that's not your motivation um and um i hope that i hope that it brings a global conversation to this crack this hole that we talked about tonight and to i feel like sometimes i'm the only person out there who's like super rah-rah teen and i really would love for more clinicians i'd love it to trickle down um And you know, maybe someday you'll be interviewing somebody else about teen health. Not that I don't want to do it, but you know, get other experts out there as well.
0: Sounds like you really jumped into a void um, that a lot of people didn't even know existed, really.
2: Yeah. And a lot of people are in the musculoskeletal sports world with teen, and there's pretty good research there. But in the the rest of the world, it's body, you know, pelvic reproductive health. We're behind the eight ball on how we handle hormone issues in teens. We're behind the eight-ball on how we handle, handle things like suicide. I have a social worker coming to talk about that. You know, how do we handle trauma in teens? How do we handle school issues, bullying? We talk about it and there's like research going on, but the implementation of how to holistically fix the system is yeah. very much, teens are pretty much otherwise healthy. Generally speaking, they're kind of a, they're a low risk category for most health conditions. They don't have heart disease yet right? They don't have osteoporosis yet for most of them. And so we kind of miss this age group as this, as Anthony said, it's like the age group to start sort of driving and being empowered about their health and being the CEO. We wait until they're in their twenties and thirties. And now there's fertility issues and overuse injuries and muscles, you know, myofascial pain, chronic pain, and, and lots of mental health issues. And we could have prevented it. I don't know. You guys probably say, I wish I'd known this when I was 12. And, and, you know, your clients probably say the same thing. So we've got to jump in there and be able to teach them when they're 12, you know, how they can redirect their ships. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think part of the issue too, for a lot of people working in private practice is they might have like a teen a week or one or two here and there. And you never really, you know, like... when when you niche into something, when you see something so many times, you start to see the patterns, you start to develop the language, you start to be able to read teens a bit better and communicate better with them and their families. Like that comes with experience and numbers, doesn't it? And I think if you're only getting a couple here and there, that's quite different to having like, if you're in a space that predominantly deals with teens, I can imagine just how much better you get at it by doing more of it. So I think there needs to be more people like really, you know, hitting that, hitting that target.
2: Yeah, we need those teen specific spaces. But if you are, do just see a couple here and there? I mean, we've got the course, which is uh, it's, uh, um, yeah, it's all recorded absolutely. so people can come back to it anytime. You're like, oh, I need to, I need to hear from a teen again, right? Like what, I'm, what am I supposed to say or not say? You can go listen to it. And then I've got a Facebook group that's free, the Health Pros for Healthy Teens group. That is a great place to come in. I do ongoing, it's called Name That Diagnosis. It's like where I throw out a case study and it's the clinician's job to guess what's wrong with me, you know. And actually, I require that they speak to me as if I am a teen. Um, and I, I, I kind of get onto them when they speak to me as if I'm Julie, right? And um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> exactly what I do. I'm like, I don't know. I'm twelve. You just asked me a question. I don't know what that means, right? And and so there's actually like there's not a lot of ongoing training and teen stuff. So I'm trying to build a community that also shares ideas, you know, and 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 keeps the conversation going for the people who are dabblers in teen health, as I call them. I just dabble. Yeah, and I, think, I think
0: that's amazing. So Julie, how do people find you? Like what's your website, website name, your Facebook page? Give us all your deets.
2: Um, all of my social handles are at Dr. Julie Granger. Um, and I think I'm on the Facebook, Twitter, not really, mostly Facebook and Instagram. Um, I'm Julie Granger on Facebook. If you want to be my friend. Um, I have my Facebook group, health pros for healthy teens. It's literally the name of it. You can search it and find it. You guys can put it in the show notes too. Um, and we can give you the link to that too. Um, and then the course is healthyteenscourse.com. Uh, you can go read about that and, you know, find out if it's a good fit for you. And if you have questions, you're welcome to email me, juliet, drjuliebranger.com. For sure. Anytime. I love to brainstorm. Well, let's just wrap it
0: up by saying a massive thank you. As always, uh, we learn so much from you, Julie. Um, We're really appreciative of your time and your course sounds incredible. I can't think of anything that exists that is like that. Um, And I would encourage anybody, well, pretty much in any field really, whether you're in mask, sports, pelvic health, if you're working with kids with disability, just if you're working with that age population, it sounds like it's incredibly valuable. So um, jump in, go, have a chat to julie ask her questions she's very very kind um clearly not as scary as other people to talk to um but yeah massive thank you julie
2: <laughs> massive you're welcome
1: yeah <laughs> Thanks it's, for having me it's fantastic and i'm definitely a confused parent so um, <laughs> you know <laughs> um it's going to be fantastic thank you for that and um Really, thank you for for your time. As usual, um, you know, there's so many great things that you're doing out there, and um, and I know, you know, we both appreciate, and so many others appreciate, um, you know, your contribution to our profession, but also not just physical therapy, but for so many health and fitness professionals, as well as uh, parents and and clients. You know, it's 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 been fantastic, and um, you know, I, I get nostalgic as February comes around, the end of February comes around, because I do remember Atlanta and, and all of those things. And, um, but we did get to, get to catch up and, um, you know, I, I I miss it basically. So it's mm-hmm. been fantastic. I'm looking forward to catching up with you again. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for all of you who are listening, like Marika said, Julie's fantastic just message her and she'll get back to you. Very, very generous. And um, thank you very much. And we will see you at the next Women's Health Podcast.
2: Uh, Thanks, guys.
1: Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you.
0: If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode.
1: Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's
2: Health Podcast.